Heavenly Father, I just cannot think of any more beautiful words than those we just saw. And all that we've been learning in Romans this year, Lord, it's just been driving deeper into our hearts that one in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And it is all because of what you did for us, Jesus. No glory to man, none. We deserve none, but you deserve absolutely all of it. Father, please take our hearts this morning that we trust are soft and moldable right now in your presence. And please change us again. Please change us again. Transform us again from glory to glory to ever increasing glory into the image of Christ. That your name would be glorified among us in the world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Beautiful. It's good to sing, amen? So good to sing. So good to sing. Romans chapter 8. Are you ready? Woo! All right. Romans chapter 8. Let's roll. That's right. Uh, it is beautiful. We've, uh, as we've been going through Romans, we've often compared the book itself to the Himalayas, and most people would consider Romans chapter 8 to be the very uh, summit of Mount Everest, Mount Everest itself. Today we're just going to look at the first four verses, um, and they're awesome. Let me read it. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Would you just pray with me one more time? Father, as we always do when we read your word, we just look up to you and say, help. Help us. Open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, well, this is one of the for sure, um, not just one of the, but probably the high point uh, in the book of Romans. You guys remember, or well, let, me should, let me just ask, how many of you have ever been to the ocean? Anybody? Yeah, most people. But do you remember the first time you ever saw the ocean? Do you remember that? I remember it when I was younger, and like you're coming in, there's, the landscape is kind of rolling, and Every hill you come up over, you kind of think you're going to see it. You know that it's coming. Um, the air smells a little bit different, right? You can smell that sea breeze and the, and the salt water. And then, and then you, you see it. Uh, and it's, 
and it's cool, and it's really big, and you feel really small, and there's something really good about feeling really small. Amen? Um, we weren't made to make much of ourselves, folks. Uh, as much as the world wants to tell us that, and the world wants to tell us just how awesome you are, and how great we are, and, and just, man, and that it's all about us, nothing could be further from the truth, and nothing could, nothing will more rob you of joy <laughs> than thinking that it is all about you. We were, made to, we were made to feel small in light of things that are much bigger than us, namely God. And uh, as we transition from Romans chapter 7 and into Romans chapter 8 here this morning, I just, that, that's just the picture for me that just came to mind, is just pulling up on the ocean for perhaps uh, the first time and just seeing this vast, uh, this vast body of, of gospel goodness and of water that lays before us and... Um, and it's cool to look at, but it's not just to look at, it's to swim in. <laughs> it's to swim in. Uh, we're going to get wet over the next couple weeks, I pray. That's my prayer, is that uh, the Holy Spirit would really douse us with all of the good news uh, that, is, that is in these verses. Um, and we'll just go ahead and jump right in, just to give a little bit of a handle for working our way through this morning. I just want to ask a couple questions, four questions really. I want to ask what is true, why it's true where it's true, but probably most importantly, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, I want you to get this because I think this is the key to truly embracing all of the unbelievable awesomeness that is Romans chapter 8, is not just what it's true, why it's true, where it's true, but when it is true, but when it is true. Please look at verse 1 and look specifically at one little word in verse 1 that if you're following me here, this will make all the difference for you not just looking at the ocean but swimming in the ocean of the gospel of God's grace. And that is the word now. Now. There is therefore now. Not just someday. When we trust in Jesus Christ, do we trust him with our eternal life? Do we trust him with our afterlife? Absolutely. But it's not just about then, it's about now. The gospel of Jesus Christ and what Paul is going to explain here and unpack for us in Romans chapter 8 is about how the gospel changes you now. There is... Another very beautiful story, again, another summit, another high point of Scripture. In John chapter 11, you guys know the story, Lazarus dies. After Jesus finds out that he dies, he stays where he was two more days. He then comes to the town of Bethany where they were, and Martha and Mary meet him. And again, Lazarus was one who it says very specifically that Jesus loved, and he loved Martha, and, and he loved Mary. And, and Martha runs to meet him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And, and uh, she is trying, in the midst of her grief, to express uh, some sort of faith 
in the power of Christ. And, and Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha digs into her bag of systematic theology and she gives a very good Sunday school answer. And I'm not saying that it isn't true and it's glorious, but, but there's more to it than this. She digs into uh, her systematic theology and she gives this good answer and she, and she says, yes, Lord, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's absolutely true. But Jesus looks at her and he says these famous words. He says, no, Martha, that's true, but, but I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And she doesn't fully get it yet. And they, and they go to the tomb where Mary is weeping. And Mary says the same thing to him. And Jesus sees Mary crying. And Mary said the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also were weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And he was deeply troubled. If you go into the Greek there, it's, it's actually the idea of him almost like growling inside, which is a powerful picture of the Lion of Judah standing before a tomb and death and almost growling in his spirit. And he says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then it says Jesus wept, but he doesn't stop there and he doesn't just weep. He stands up and he says, roll away the stone. <laughs> and Martha, always the pragmatist, uh, Lord, he's been dead for four days, um, it's going to stink at this point, is what she says. And he looks at her again and he says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they roll away the stone and he says those words, Lazarus, come out. And he comes on out, all bound together. He comes hopping out. Jesus, I mean, I'm assuming that's what was happening, I don't know. And Jesus, because Jesus has to say, unbind him, set him free. And let him go. And you understand, that was Martha right? Are, are we right in saying that, yes, our salvation is about eternal life? Obviously. But what I'm saying here at the beginning of Romans chapter 8 is that, I believe it is we stand at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, it's the same as standing with Jesus as Mary and Martha did at the entrance to the tomb. And I'm praying that by the power of the Spirit and the power of his piercing word that we would hear his voice say to us, to you, roll away the stone. There is life that I want to bring into you right now. Because there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, if we're going to Swim in this ocean, we've got we've to get this. I just kind of said it, that's the, that's the when, but, but what? what? What's happening when? What I just said, there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation, folks. There is none. You are set free. And this, and this declaration that there's therefore now no condemnation if you understand it, here's what it does. It sets you free. It sets you free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And again, this, this, this declaration here that there is no condemnation, and it, it's the idea of none, zero, zilch, nada, nothing. 
The first word is so in, in the English, and we have to do this because of the way we translate it and the, you know, the syntax and the grammar of the English language versus the Greek that it was written in, but, but, it, but it is kind of subtle, but yet it's important, I think, and you kind of would see this in the original, is that in, in verse 1, the word no is like the fifth word. There is, therefore, now, and then no condemnation. But in the Greek, it, it literally, the first word of the sentence is no! It, it literally would read, no, therefore, now, condemnation which again is a little bit choppy to us, but, but the emphasis here is, is that that's exactly what Paul is saying, that there is none at all. The no is emphatic. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and only if you have felt the weight of your guilt and the weight of your sin in the light of a holy God will this ever be good news for you. Only if you have truly experienced death, just like Mary and Martha experienced the actual death of their brother, only if you have experienced and felt the death that your sin brings into your life will you ever be able to experience the resurrection of Jesus Christ declaring over you that there is no condemnation at all, not just someday, but right now. Right now. It's absolutely amazing. You remember just very quickly, I'm going to read a lot of Bible here to you just to review from Romans chapter 1. Remember that the big, the, the big problem is that the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not that they don't know the truth, they suppress the truth. And not just for the pagan out there in the world someday that doesn't go to church, but even for the religious. You know, in the beginning of Romans chapter 2, Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you who judge practice the very same things. He goes on and he speaks to the Jew. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know that his, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you, you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he comes to kind of this little... I don't know, kind of a negative crescendo in Romans chapter 3 where he says, what then shall we say? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, everybody in all the world that's ever been born, been born into Adam, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. In other words, the whole world stands condemned. What are we going to do? The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned, everybody, everybody's in the same boat. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus Christ. Then he continues to unpack that even when we're justified by faith, salvation, it's not just praying a prayer and then waiting to die. And really, a lot of what his argument is in chapters 4, and then especially in 5, 6, and 7, 
as, as we've just come out of, is I think at the heart of all of it that Paul's trying to get to is when we bank our hope fully on Jesus Christ, and you know that we're adamant that the gospel is that it is by faith alone, nothing else. I think the thing that Paul was getting after is that little bit of doubt in us that wants to say, yeah, I believe it, but maybe I better help just a little bit. It's, it's 99.9% Jesus. I know that. To him be all the glory. Amen. Hallelujah. But just that 0.1%. I still got to do just a little something. And yet Paul stands here at the beginning of Romans chapter 8 with all that he said. And here's what he said. He said, You're, you were dead but Jesus has made you alive. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want to talk a little bit about how this works, okay? Now we're going to get a little bit technical, but and again, I need you to remember where we've just been in Romans chapter 7 and how the law still works in our life at times to, to convict it of, of sin and to um, make us cry out as Paul did last week, even as Christians, O wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And you'll see these two laws at work here. Okay, I want us to understand this in verse 2 where he says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see the two laws? Law of the spirit of life, law of sin and death. The law of sin and death, he's just simply speaking here of the Mosaic law. So if you'll just flip back with me um, just into chapter 7 where he speaks about this, like he says in verse 10 of chapter 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He said back in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the law just simply stirred it back up, and the law is holy and righteous and good, and yet Paul calls the law here the law of sin and death because that's ultimately the only thing that it can produce in our life because of the sin nature in us. And that is true, but there is another law at work. It is the law of the spirit of life. And if I had to sum up the law of the spirit of life here, it's just a broad term that Paul is using, now bringing in the idea of the Holy Spirit, and this is going to be massively huge for us in chapter 8, and Paul does something that, just by way of observation, he wants us to get as we're going to go through the whole of chapter 8 over the next several weeks, is that up until this point in the book of Romans, he has only mentioned the Holy Spirit about three times. The very end of chapter 2, once in chapter 5, verse 5, and back in chapter 7, verse 6. He mentions the Spirit, but now in chapter 8, he's going to mention the Holy Spirit about 19 times. And so all of a sudden, woof, like a rushing mighty wind, just like it came on the day of Pentecost, here comes this idea of the Spirit. Now the Spirit, this law of the Spirit of life, and, and the, again, that phrase, Spirit of life there, it's just the law of the Spirit of life. It's just almost like another name for the gospel itself. But he's bringing in this language of the Holy Spirit. And how he applies this, this, this truth to our life. And here's the way it kind of works, is that these two laws work together, and again, any analogy that you give, if you press it to the nth degree, analogies break down, but this works on some level, so hang with me. 
It's the same idea as the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. Okay? Let's say that the law of the spirit or, or the law of sin and death is like the Mosaic law, and that's like gravity. It's always there, and it's it's not wrong. In fact, it's wholly righteous and good, but it but it keeps us but it keeps us down. Well, the problem is we try to do things in the power of our own flesh, and, and we fall, and we, and we hurt ourselves. And you guys know the story where I, I fell. It wasn't even far, that far of a fall. It was only like seven feet. It would have been kind of cool, cooler. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the story would have been cooler if I would have fallen like 20 feet or something. It was just like six, seven feet. But I was upside down, and I, and I broke my neck. Gravity, pulling me back down. Last time I flew, though, Back in the fall was when uh, I went to Columbia with Taylor and Matt and uh, my oldest son Ephraim. And we go to Columbia and we're flying at 30,000 feet. Now I fell and broke my neck at like six or seven feet, but we're flying at 30,000 feet. Made it safely there, made it safely back. Why? Because another law was at work that, listen, it transcends the law of gravity. There's another law at work. The Mosaic law at work to bring death, but there is another law because of what Jesus has done that comes in and it transcends the moral law of the written written code. And it is the law of the spirit of life. And in Christ Jesus, by the power of the spirit, which is what Paul is going to talk about primarily, along with many other things, throughout this chapter, it is the spirit that helps us not just kind of hang in midair for a split second at six or seven feet, but he wants to help us to soar to the glory of God at 30,000 feet in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter seven, are there, are there days and moments and times and will they continue till we go home to glory that we once again feel the weight of the gravity pulling us back down and the fall is real and the sin is ours and we must own it and we will cry out, a wretched man that I am? Yes, absolutely. But just in the same way that is real, there is something else that is also now real and it is the reality of the law of the spirit of life in our lives transformation, the change that the gospel brings, it is real right now. Are you with me? Right now. Um, so it is true now, and what he's pressing here is this idea of no condemnation, that we're completely set free, none, zero, zilch, nada. Not a bit. And then he rolls into kind of why this is true. So look at the words for. There's no condemnation. And for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. And again, it's this idea of like aerodynamics transcending the law of gravity, law of the spirit transcending the law of sin and death. Then another for at the beginning of verse three, for God has done. Why is this true? Why is this true? Because God has done something that we could not do, that the law could not do, God has done. If you just want to paraphrase the essence of the gospel, if somebody comes up to you and is like, man, what's the gospel all about? Here's what the gospel is about. The gospel is God has done. He has done something that you could not do, that I could not do, that all of humanity together could not do. What has he done? Well, there's a couple things here. Just read it with me. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, 
He condemned sin in the flesh. What's, he's just, there, there are oceans of meaning and action and behind each one of these little words and these little phrases here. That he sent his son for God so loved the world that he sent. He loved and so he gave. He loved and so he sent his son. His love compelled him to action. It wasn't just, he wasn't just willing to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything about it. God did for us what the law, what the law could not do. And again, let me not blow by that phrase. Um, he says God has done, and then he gets to what he did, but there's that little phrase in between there, the beginning of verse 3, that what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That no matter what, no matter how holy and righteous and good the law was, it could not save us. The only thing the law could do, it's like a drug dog at the airport, sniffing out anything bad. There's a lot of bad in us. A lot of sin. And the law came to sniff it out. Forgive me if some of you, I, I use this, I'm going to kind of recycle an illustration here, but it's so, I, I just love this. I used it out west a couple weeks ago when I was preaching out there, and so most of you probably didn't hear it. But in John Bunyan's um, long allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most famous books ever written, in fact, I think next to the Bible, the second best-selling book in the English language of all time. But Christian is this Christian man in the allegory, and he's journeying forward, and he has a friend named Faithful who journeys with him at different times, also on their way to the, to the heavenly city. And he meets up with, Christian meets up with Faithful, and Faithful tells this story about this man who overtook him. And Faithful says, soon a man overtook me. It was with but a word and a blow, for he knocked me down and laid me for dead. And when I was little come to myself again, I asked him why he served me so. And he said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. And with that, he struck me with another deadly blow on the breast, and he beat me down backwards. So I lay at his foot as though dead. So when I came to myself again, I cried to him, mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. And Christian looked at Faithful and he said, ah, that man that overtook you was Moses, says Christian. He spareth none, neither knoweth he know, neither knoweth he how to show mercy to those that transgress his law. And Faithful says, Ah, yes. And he, he and he would, Moses, he would have doubtless made an end of me. But that one came by and bid him forbear. And he says, I knew not who that one was until he turned and I saw the holes in his hands and in his side. Isn't that beautiful? That the law again and again and again is holy and righteous and good, but all it does again and again and again is knock us down. But there's one who comes by and he sets us free from Moses, from the law, by fulfilling the law, by doing what we could not do. At the cost and requiring the action of actually hanging on a cross, 
having his hands and his feet pierced along with his side. And, and he hung there, again, fulfilling the law. And he hung there, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And again, this has been a, a theological idea and theme that we've seen back in chapter 5 um, and in different places of how the law actually exalts Christ. Because Christ set us free from the standard of the law by fulfilling the law for us. But in fulfilling the law, it cost him his life. And there is no condemnation because, precisely because, God did what we could not do. He sent his son. And the reason there is none, no condemnation, is because it is done. It has been done by Christ. Who sent his son, now the latter half of verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, in that little phrase, for sin, it's the idea of like concerning sin, or some of the English translations might actually say on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, there's the word condemned again. Verse 1. No condemnation, none, nada, zero, zilch. Yet the sin was condemned, verse 3. And it was condemned in the body of Christ. Because his body, as we're going to celebrate here in a little bit this morning, his body was broken for us. He took it all. There is no condemnation for anyone here this morning that simply places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing we need to talk about is not just when it's true, what is true, and why it's true because of what God done, but where it is true. And this is important. And it's subtle, but I'm pretty adamant that this is what it means. Um, because it, otherwise the rest of the chapter doesn't have the impact that I think it's supposed to have. But he says here that he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, here's what it says, in us. In us. Now, this is very theologically important, hang with me. At other places in the book up until this point, the idea of justification that we've primarily been pushing is that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled for us. Not in us, but for us. Okay? So back in chapter 3, um, he actually, again, I, just, I read this a little bit ago, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for, for all who believe. And we've hammered away over these last several months that this justification is a, is a declaration of Christ fulfilling the law for us. And it's an alien imputed righteousness. You remember that term? That he declares us, he clothes us in his righteousness, though it is not ours, it is alien to us. He gives it to us. 
What I'm going to argue here is that when he speaks here, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and then who follows it up with the very next phrase, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What he's speaking of here is that now the law is fulfilled actually in us by the way that we, end of verse 4, walk and live. Now we do not walk it out perfectly, and we don't always do it 100%, but let me explain what he's talking about here. Where is this law now fulfilled? It is fulfilled in us. And what does he mean by, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us? What is the righteous requirement of the law? Do you know? It's one word. Starts with an L, ends with an of. Subtle. It's love. The righteous requirement of the law that he's speaking of here is love. Let me show you a few places. We'll get to this when he really gets to the practical applicational part in Romans chapter 13. Listen. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves, listen, the, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Therefore, verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, is he speaking of fulfilling the law in a way that is perfect and blameless and will justify us before an almighty holy God? No. We could never do that. But he's talking about, though, and he uses the word fulfilled there, even in chapter 13, that this love now, only for those who have truly been set free and where God and through Christ Jesus has fulfilled the law for them, it will now be fulfilled in them. Only if you understand that God's love has been poured out and the law and the righteousness that you cannot, could never attain has been fulfilled for you, only then Will the true love of Christ come through you? Let me say it this way, and this is what I, the primary thing that I want you to get out of this section, I think everything is building towards this, and this idea is going to be fleshed out then, and how the Spirit does this in our life throughout the rest of the chapter. Listen carefully. The only people who can truly love like Jesus are a people who have been set free by Jesus. The only people who can truly love like Jesus are a people who have been set free or liberated by Jesus. Remember just said there's no condemnation. The law of the spirit of life has what? It's set us free. We are truly free because Christ has paid absolutely everything. We are now free. Free to do what? We are free to love. We are free to love like Christ. Is our love going to be imperfect? 100% it's going to be imperfect. But we are free because we know that no matter what we do now, our love, it is not about performance. It's not about earning anything before God. Why? Because we never could. And Jesus fulfilled it for us. But if we truly believe that there's no condemnation, and he's fulfilled it for us. It will now be fulfilled in us, but only for those who know that they've been set free. Are you following me? 
This is really important. Here, here's how this works, okay? Um, let me, we gotta get this. Listen to, to 1 Corinthians 13 and the radical statement that Paul made. I'm sure you guys have heard this wet, read at a wedding before. Um, doesn't really have anything to do with weddings, but we like to hijack it for that, and, you know, it's fine. I don't want to ruin anybody's wedding, okay, but it's just a side note. Anyway, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, listen to this statement. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but don't have love, I gain nothing. Now that's a radical statement, right? Because like if somebody offers up their body you know, for somebody else and like, like, I don't know, to the point where they're, they're able to be burned, he's like, well, it, yeah, that seems loving, but if, if it's not done out of love, it doesn't accomplish anything. But here's the point, brother and sister, as we're, as we're called to love one another, we have to know Again, going back to the fact that I said that, that Jesus Christ didn't just fulfill 99.9% of the righteousness we need. You have to believe that he died for all of it or none of it at all. Because if I believe that Jesus did 99.9% of it and he calls me to love Joe, if there's, just, if there's even just a little bit that I've got to earn, then guaranteed I'm going to somehow work to try to earn it, to keep it. And if he calls me to love Joe, and I could just, I laid, I offer my body to the flames for Joe. But I have not love. You know who it's all about? Me. And see, the fulfilling of the law, it's, it's not just about what we do, it's about why we do it. Which is why you'll always hear us say, you're far more sinful than what you think. Far more. Because even when you do the right thing, maybe you're not doing it for the right reasons. But if I know that Jesus Christ has died for all my sin, not just the things I do that are wrong and not just the things I don't do that I should, but he even died for the reasons why I do them, whether good or bad, if I truly believe that there's no condemnation, that he's paid it all, I'm free to just love. I'm free to give. I'm free to lay down my life. But do you understand, brother and sister, how your theology is 100% going to affect your life and your practice? And let me just, maybe you're, maybe you're getting this, if you're thinking with me through this. Maybe you're there already in your mind, so let me just go ahead and address it. Okay? Um, and I'll address it just for what it is because it's, it, it's usually, so, it's, a, it's, a, it's an especially controversial idea, although it's 100% biblical, but it's a, an especially controversial idea in this area, in the tradition that many of us grew up in. You can not lose your salvation. And if you think that you can, because it's 99.9%, but it's just not, I, you know, what if I gotta, I gotta perform. If you're working out of that, you're not actually loving. 
Because it's not just about what you do. It's about why you do it. You follow? Again, I'm not just trying to come around and like, um, I'm trying to, but I, theology matters. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you truly know that, you're set free. And if you're truly free, only then can we love like Jesus. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing that he came to liberate us. Now, <clears throat> again, he says this here, <clears throat> that the law might be fulfilled in us. Let me show you again where I'm getting this in the text. Not just that in us, but who walk. Again, walk is, this is Paul's favorite term that he uses throughout all his letters for, for living the Christian life. It's not run, skip, jump, hop, leap, bound. It's just walk, just one step at a time. But we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that the Spirit is now in us to guide us step by step into two things. The Spirit, so who does the Spirit ultimately want to exalt? You or Jesus? I need you to answer that one for me. Oh, Jesus, yeah, very, very good. Okay. The Spirit ultimately wants to exalt Jesus. So how does the Spirit want to do that? He wants to exalt Jesus in your own personal life. He want, the Spirit wants to constantly remind you, not of what you can't do, but what of, of, about what Jesus has done. Because the Spirit wants to exalt Jesus, he wants to constantly remind you about what Jesus has done for you. What's he done? He's paid it all. Secondly, because the Spirit wants to exalt Jesus, he now wants you to look like Jesus. And so as he reminds you that there's no condemnation, that you're free, because Jesus did everything that was required in order for you to be accepted and to become God's child, he now wants you to live like Jesus. And how did Jesus live? Jesus fulfilled the law, and what did that look like? It looked like love. It looked like him hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. Brothers and sisters, this is what he wants to bring through our life. Jesus came to purchase a people for himself that might live in the same way he lived. But only when we understand that there is no condemnation are we truly set free? Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. I want to finish kind of where I started with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Again, think about their lives after that if you can. Having, in a sense, Lazarus literally and Mary and Martha kind of figuratively having witnessed it. Having passed through on some level death already and having experienced it because of the power of the resurrection and the life. Were there still, after that, were there moments where they, where they doubted? I'm sure. Were there moments where they were afraid? Yeah, 
probably. Were they there with the rest of the 12 in the upper room? Maybe when they were waiting on Pentecost and were they a little bit confused and in prayer? Yeah, they probably were. Did they have to die again? Yes, they did. Well, Lazarus again, Mary and Martha for the first time, but they, they still died. They, they still had to face all that. But there's also no way that their life wasn't different. <laughs> there's no way that they were not living in a new level of freedom after that experience of seeing Lazarus raised from the dead than, than what they had before. And only if we understand the supreme sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that he paid it all will his love ever come through us. Folks, that's, that's what he wants. He wants his love to come through you in your marriage, to your spouse, to your husband, to your wife, to your kids, to your mother, to your father, to your coworker, and not just to those. He wants it to come through you to your enemies, to those that hate you, and to those that you struggle to forgive. He wants his love to come through you. The only way it will ever happen is if you believe what is stated right here. The condemnation, guilt, it is no more. It's gone. And you've been set free. As we come to the Lord's table today, and whoever's helping serve, you can come down front. There's always a lot to say about this, but I just want us to think especially this morning as we remember that the bread represents his broken body and the drink is shed blood that I just want us to remember this is what love is. Amen? This is what love is. That God sent his son. And what he did for all those who will simply trust it, it brought us the whole way through. Not just almost there. He didn't just bring us just to the line and then we got to figure out a way to make it across. He brought us the whole way through. Only to be received by faith. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Just pray with me and then we'll stand and sing and you guys come. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that there's no condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, that you paid it all. Thank you that you've placed your Holy Spirit in your people to remind us of the excellencies of your glory, that you fulfilled the law that we could not, that you loved us perfectly to the very end, even with your dying breath. And we thank you that your spirit now lives in us to bring about this life of light and love through our lives to others. Lord, I pray that you would do it. 
I pray that you would bring forgiveness and wholeness and healing and assurance into our lives. And Lord, help us to live like you by the power of your spirit where we love other people to the glory of the Father. I pray that where resistance to love exists in each one of our hearts. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would come and that you'd place that under your feet this morning. I pray that we would lay it down. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've given us. Thank you for your love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.